what I found is actually the more I travel, the more I realize that we're all exactly the same. Of course, there are nuances to how we live and beautiful richness and and cultures, but actually, fundamentally, humans are really similar. <laughs> I always was really curious about what the rest of the world was like. How could how could I sort of infuse in large commercial organizations a way of thinking and approaching designing products and services to both serve a business purpose as well as a social need? Welcome to Cross Pollination, a show about creativity, innovation, and doing things differently. We're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. On our last episode, we talked to a guest whose international childhood led him to become a global explorer. This week, we hear from another guest, Ling Ling Fung, with international roots that similarly led her to want to see the rest of the world, and in this case, to combine it with business and social innovation. That's a trend that in different ways is creating interest in many places near and far as people look at different ways to address big challenges in society using the tools and practices of business. So although this episode has a global focus, work that's related to it is relevant everywhere and so are many of the lessons. Ling Ling Fung is a strategist and the founder of Two Lings, an international consultancy that works with corporations, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and development organizations. She's an expert on combining social innovation and business models in emerging markets to create profits and social benefits. Why are companies interested in this? How does that work actually get done? And how do practitioners come to work in it? This episode is about business and social innovation and human development. Ling Ling begins with her own path. So I am a refugee from Vietnam, so my family um, escaped Vietnam after the war in 1979. So I came to the U.S. Um, to a small dairy farming village back when I was like two years old, uh, living in a place where no one looked like me and didn't speak the language and the culture was completely different. And I lived these dual worlds of, um, you know, in my home, it was like living in China and um, eating Chinese and Vietnamese food and having that culture. And then when I stepped outside of the doors, it's you know, sort of rural America and small town USA, and no one looked like me. And um, I always was really curious about what the rest of the world was like, because I knew that I wasn't from there, you know, sort of, um, there was a sense that there was a larger world out there. And I was always very curious about it from that very young age. And I think that was the seed of wanting to uh, go overseas and do work overseas as well. And I finally got to do that when I graduated from university. I, I got my passport and I, I jetted myself off to China um, for my first stint overseas and, and was doing some uh, business studies as well as interned for um, sort of a large, large multinational there as well too and got my first taste of working overseas. And from that, you know, actually it was, I, you know, really, I, I knew that I wanted to work more than just domestically in the U.S. And then I also, um, I should say, when I was in university, got my first taste of doing work with purpose. Um, so myself and another college student had launched a uh, relief effort for Hurricane Mitch back in 1999. And I was really moved by an article I read in the New York Times and decided and in there to launch this relief effort. And actually, that's where the seed of doing social impact work started was back in um, back in university. And I think that happens for many people sort of, you know, our lives are, are so intertwined with 
um, experiences that are not solely professional. So I think, you know, actually drawing from um, sort of our intrinsic motivations to know ourselves better and then um, those parts of our lives that really bring joy and bring us to life in ways um, that are really meaningful. You know, I, I think everyone has had those experiences where you take a piece of work that, you know, again, might not be professional, might be volunteer work, might be something you do at school, uh, might be something you do creatively and artistically, but you feel this energy and this draw to it throughout your body. And actually, when I think about the work that I do now, it's the culmination of all of those pieces. You know, that time back at William and Mary when I was running that relief effort. Um, and then also just from those seeds of um, sort of interest, curiosity as a kid growing up in rural Virginia and then finally getting my, my first foot out the door uh, from graduation, living in China, and then eventually um, um, traveling, you know, all over, actually all over the Africa region and, and South and Southeast Asia as well, too. This sounds like a pretty radical way of working, looking not just at a paycheck, but at work that gives you joy and meaning. Like many people, Ling Ling didn't just jump into this work or have that holistic approach to it right away. She first worked to develop experience to enter the field. So my first stint out overseas was just from this um, uh, study abroad program post-university. And so it was not at all from, you know, uh, a professional piece of work. And then I eventually found my first way overseas um, as a Rotary Scholar. And I, so I lived and worked in Senegal um, on a Rotary scholarship to study languages. So that's how I, you know, no one was going to pay me to go overseas at first. So I, I ended up um, looking for other ways, other, other uh, fellowships to um, take me overseas. So I, I, I won a Rotary scholarship to study French in Walloof in Senegal. And um, I guess that was in 2003, 2004. And during that time, actually, I had wanted to go there so I could learn about microfinance and work um, in development, but no one was going to pay me to go. So I, I did it under a scholarship in, to learn languages. But then in the afternoons, I went and interned um, at a micro credit union uh, for women in Dakar as well. So that was sort of the, the first bit. And then all of my other travels, again, it's, it's a bit, um, some of it's voluntary. And then also some of it was uh, eventually through work that I was able to get, but much, much later on. So for microfinance, Ling Ling was able to see a connection between business and social innovation that seeks to solve social problems in combination with sustainable business models. In the regions where she works, that idea had its roots in an article and then a book by C.K. Prahalad, The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid, that changed ideas about markets and customers even in very low-income regions. If you're interested in hearing more on that topic, strategist and design expert C.K. Prahalad's daughter, Deepa Prahalad, talked in more detail about how that can work in episode 22. I mean, I think it probably started out with um, sort of some pivotal work by C.K. Prahalad on... Um, sort of fortune at the bottom or the base of the pyramid. And and so that really got people interested in, oh, well, maybe there's actually a business opportunity there. And we should look at sort of lower income communities as um, potential customers and not just, um, you know, not just recipients of foreign aid. And so I think that for me, at least that was the seed of it. And, you know, looking at um, business as a real driver for growth. And and actually for me, when I was thinking about doing work back um, in developing countries after my time in Senegal, it really occurred to me that foreign aid and development agencies, NGOs, were not the only players because just 
looking around in, in these countries, you know, private private sector businesses are thriving and they're a huge source for both jobs as well as um, for for technical te- technological advancement. So, you know, the good jobs as well too. And and um, when I went to study um, international development and did my degree in development economics, I learned very quickly that actually one of the biggest best ways for economies to grow is to have that sort of foreign investment um, specifically in transferring technical knowledge to developing countries. So that actually put it put in my mind, well, you know, I had done some work for the UN and I had done some work um, working for um, development agencies such as USAID as well. But what if I sort of redirected this work of development but through the lens of private sector and how could we shape that kind of work? And so when I graduated um, from my graduate degrees, I, I did go into consulting, but then was always looking at, well, how do I translate this work and combine commercial and social together? And when I started doing the research, I found that actually a number of multinationals were heavily invested in developing countries purely you know, for commercial purposes. But when you look at sort of the products that they deliver to market, um, a lot of them are very impactful as well, too, um, from a social impact standpoint, but it's not really branded or sort of named in, in that way. Um, so I was thinking, well, how could we, how could, how could I sort of infuse in um, large commercial organizations um, a way of thinking and approaching designing products and services to both serve a business purpose as well as um, a social need? because I actually had come from both that commercial background and worked in development. And when I started having the conversations, actually people would get really excited about it because they saw um, that, you know, it could be very meaningful that their organization, um, the, the know-how and the technical uh, capabilities could be leveraged to be a force for good as well as, you know, create business. And so when I joined, um, started working with Unilever, uh, I guess that was back in 2000, early 2011. Um, that's what I went in to do specifically for an incubator was to um, design social ventures that had that combined um, business KPIs as well as uh, social impact. Um, so yeah, it's developed so much over the years, and actually there are a, a number of pioneering companies out there that are um, really trying out new business models and creating. Uh, new products and services, as well as looking at how to make their businesses more inclusive by including um, sort of lower income communities and smallholder farmers into their procurement and supply chain. So all of those things are really impactful um, to the overall goal of economic development and social impact in the developing world. Since this episode emphasizes innovation, we wanted to tell you about the Inventors Conference, a chance to connect with many of the best and brightest. Join 4,000 plus creative, curious minds on the frontier of innovation. Hear more than 250 speakers on six program tracks, including smart cities, vibrant communities. Inventors connects entrepreneurs and startups with venture cap, angel investors, service providers, thought leaders, and there's an education track for students too. Alberta Innovates is making this possible in Calgary, June 3rd to June 5th. Tickets are $3.99 before the end of April, and if you're a student, there's an early bird discount right now for $99. Get your tickets today at InventorsCanada.com. That's I-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S, Canada.com. 
The Linglings worked with a number of different kinds of organizations, both private sector, international government agencies, and NGOs, and interestingly at times through collaborations between them rather than traditional silos or competition. Some of those projects have also been with companies that are known for more unconventional approaches to business. To get an idea of what some of the projects can look like, here she is with some examples. My first uh, portfolio of work um, involved a product to prevent malnutrition. Um, so what we found was that, that there was a real gap in um, sort of the nutritional, I guess what was offered in the space of nutrition for low-income um, communities for children, say, like after the breastfeeding age of uh, six months. So from six months to two years of age during that weaning period, you see a drop in um, sort of nutrition levels for children because the sort of the food that was being fed to children during that age is really carbohydrate-heavy. Um, and so really it filled the bellies that actually had very nutri- very low nutritional content in it. And so we we're looking that at um, we're looking at that as, well, how do we, you know, produce something that would fill that gap in nutrition um, that would also still encourage mothers to cook for their kids because that's what you want. You actually do want home cooked meals uh, for kids and and actually still combine sort of the cultural um uh, feeding habits and practices of each country. And so we were approached, Unilever was approached by an NGO to actually produce this product. And so in partnership with uh, this NGO and also an academic institution, we created a product um, specifically to meet the nutritional needs of children for that age group in uh, developing countries. And it took ages to do, but I'm happy to say that at the end of, at the beginning of this year, actually, the result for that a clinical study for that product um, has been published and, and the results are, are very positive. So it takes quite a long time to do. It's actually been, I guess, nearly 10 years since um, the product's inception, but that is one example of a product that um, could have uh, commercial value and also is highly impactful from a, a, a social impact standpoint. Um, another product that I worked on was um, a more concept to um, around safe drinking water. So um, I, I and also another NGO went into um, the suburbs of Kenya and looked at different models to um, increase uh, access to safe drinking water in low-income communities there. And so what we saw was there was, you know, bottled water that you could buy from the supermarket that was very expensive. Um, and there were also these water filtration systems that you could also uh, purchase and use to filter the water. Um, but when you looked at actually how water was consumed in those communities, what you saw was that people actually didn't have piped water into their homes. And so they were getting water from these unsafe sources. And when you don't have water piped into your home, using the filtration device felt like an extra step. And so we looked at um, developing a community service, uh, sort of a community-based uh, water filtration system where people bought safe drinking water um, either from the uh, store itself or we delivered it to them. So we're trying to hit that you know, middle price point that was um, going to be cheaper than um, the drinking water that you're able to get at the grocery stores, um, but probably more expensive than the unsafe water that they were already uh, buying in sort of these 20-liter um, 
jug. And so from that, it was a concept because we were looking at not only the sort of improving access to safe drinking water, but if we're already in people's homes, what other sort of good for you products could we bundle on? Could we, for example, sell nutritious food products? Could we sell hygiene products, et cetera? And we were looking at whether that could be a new channel, a new avenue for um, creating a new route to market for products that improved people's health and well-being. So that was that's a second kind of uh, model that I was looking at. And I would just say a, a third one. I also looked at working with the an incredibly large network of micro retailers uh, within the supply chain. So um, those that are actually selling the products to consumers um, in developing countries are usually these tiny, tiny mom and pop shops. And what we were finding is that actually a lot of these mom and pop shops were um, potentially going out of business because they didn't really have the right tools for understanding um, how much profit they were making at the end of the day and managing their inventory. So um, an innovation that I was looking at bringing, actually an innovation that was designed in Mexico um, by a social enterprise, I was looking to apply it in uh, the distribution chain in Ghana to see if we could actually increase um, the profitability and increase um, the livelihoods of micro entrepreneurs in Ghana. So that's another example of it was not a social venture, but more um, how to improve um, the supply chain and do inclusive business within the supply chain of a large multinational. So hopefully those give you some ideas of the kind of work that I was doing um, specifically while I was at Unilever. So these projects cross-pollinate the worlds of social innovation and revenue-generating business models. Tapping into markets, understanding the needs of potential customers, and creating services and products they might want to buy isn't always simple, especially when those customers might never have been exposed to those products or services before. I asked Lingling how, working in many different places with different cultures, different characteristics, different markets, if you're not yourself someone who's embedded there and knows a market firsthand, how you can verify that a need for a particular product exists and how to find a market for it. Those questions often require a deep understanding of customers, how they live, and what they want. Her answer has a lot to do with some topics we've run into on previous shows – Good design, co-creating, and involving potential customers from early on to develop something they'll really value and find useful. It's a yeah, it's a really great question. Um, so the ideas come from very many many places, and then you sort of really have to test them in market to make sure that um, we what we're trying to solve for. So what I like to say is that. Um, what sometimes is identified as a need uh, by governments or donor agencies or NGOs doesn't necessarily translate into demand um, in the marketplace. And so um, because there will be ideas that come from, for example, I was mentioning this NGO that came to the business um, to solve this challenge around uh, malnutrition for infants in developing countries. And then there are also ideas that might come from R&D of the business. So the business might say, look, we have this really interesting technology um, and we think it could be applied in this way. Does it, would it actually work? And so it's great actually having ideas coming from all these different places um, and coming from, uh, I guess, working with teams from uh, multidisciplinary teams coming from uh, many backgrounds and uh, across the globe also sort of helps generate a lot of ideas as well, too. And we get that uh, usually working um, 
at large multinationals. Um, but really, the important bit is to test it with the potential people you're looking to serve. And I, I smile as I say this because there's so many great ideas and there's so much need out there. But what I say, when I say to combine the two to actually solve um, a challenge, a social or environmental challenge with a business model, something very specific because it requires actually revenue to be generated somewhere. And revenue can be generated from potentially a donor agency, you know, or um, a foundation, some other third party that wants to see the social outcome. Um, but actually, many times, for it to be truly sustainable, um, ideally, it's coming from those that would be receiving the products and services, the consumers themselves. And when you're looking at working with low-income communities, um, the cash flow in a household can be, you know, uh, pretty low, pretty hard to work with to, to find a revenue, a sustainable revenue generating model. And so you really have to test to make sure that um, the need that's been identified actually meets the demand um, from a consumer. And that demand means that someone is not only um, recognizes they have that challenge, that problem that you're trying to solve, but is also willing to pay for it. And those two things might sound easy, but for example, um, you know, two areas where there's these entrenched large social challenges around um, safe drinking water, for example, as well as improved nutrition, often people don't know they have that problem. They don't know that them or themselves might um, have uh, malnutrition. Um, they might not know that the water they're drinking is actually unsafe as well, too. Um, so those two areas you see time and time again that there's a very large social need, but um, translating that into demand can be very difficult. Yeah, I mean, educating the market is um, both really important and very costly as well, too. So really have to design a business model that embeds the education and sort of that um, know-how into the business model. What I mean by that is you're, you have to change behavior. So if you're trying to get someone to adopt a product, ideally you develop a product in the way, a way of the person purchasing that product that has them purchasing it over and over again. Um, either some level of incentive mechanism or as simple as, you know, a larger pack size, because then a low income consumer would never buy a large pack of something and then throw it away. Um, to have someone use it over and over again actually helps um, that repetitive repeated behavior um, that you want to see for um, getting people to, you know, eat more nutritious food products or to um, you or to, you know, drink safe drinking water. It, ideally, it's actually being done over and over again that a certain pattern is, and habits are built around it. And so a lot of times you do have to educate that you also have to build in to the business model into the offering itself ways to embed behavior into people's lives. And all of that is, you know, really quite nuanced to the local, um, you know, whatever community that you're working with as well too. So it requires um, a lot of really great design and a lot of patience and a lot of, you know, putting yourself, um, well, actually not putting yourself in the consumer shoes, really observing the consumer um, in a completely non-judgmental way of, you know, you might think, oh, why are they doing this? But actually really making those um, observations to understand um, what is happening, and then the most importantly as to why, really understanding the beliefs and the values underneath why people are making, um, taking certain certain actions um, or decisions in their lives. It takes time, you know, and it takes patience, and it takes quite a lot of iteration. You know, so 
we, you go in and you, you must know that the first, your first shot at it of whatever your prototype is, is likely not going to be your final design. Um, but if you actually work with consumers as early as possible, um, then it's going to make a world of difference because you won't lock in a particular design and start producing something at mass scale before actually knowing whether um, people are, are going to adopt it um, you know, into something in their lives. It's hard to underestimate the role of good design. What else does it take inside organizations to engage in social innovation and work with other organizations to move the dial on the SDGs, as Ling Ling mentions, the Global Sustainable Development Goals set out through the UN in 2012? Provoking systems change can often be hard and long-term work. What are the rewards for companies that get involved? Some things just can't be set up and it's the nature of the challenge that we see in the world, all those you know, sort of big entrenched challenges that you see in the SDGs, they're not there because people haven't invested in it and they're smart people haven't tried to work on it. They're, they're systemic challenges. And when you have systemic challenges actually involves multiple players and involves, you know, quite a long-term commitment um, and many different approaches to tackle it. But I'm, I'm optimistic actually that, um, uh, both public and private sector are learning and learning how to work with each other better and better as well, too, and that there's more and more appetite um, to do this kind of work and, you know, really make the real investments in, in the long term. The buy-in needs to happen at more, all levels, so it, it needs to happen most strategically at the very top level. Otherwise, um, sort of other middle-level managers um, might not have sort of the leeway to experiment and test out um, new ideas. Um, but crucially, it also needs to be bought in at, you know, all the different layers to, for those to, to get it done as well, too. So if there isn't a culture for doing this kind of work, as well as processes in place that uh, that are patient and allow for this level of innovation and, um, I guess, you know, internal, I would say, patient capital or investment in it, then it might not, you know, it might not get out the door in the way that you you would expect it. I think that most of the innovations um, from a market and strategy standpoint um, do fit, but a lot of the challenges are really from, you know, getting the buy-in um, internally to um, take the risks and not just look at, quote-unquote, core results and just close it down from there, but actually really continue down the road to iterate um, to see what works in the end. So it takes quite a lot of um, both investment in time, um, uh, cash, and internal resources. It's not small, um, but in the end, if you're able to get it to work, wow, uh, how incredible is it to create a business that actually uh, contributes to top-line revenue and as well as solves uh, a huge social, uh, social challenge in the world. So tackling systemic changes really requires cross-pollinating approaches that involve different kinds of organizations, different ideas, and resources all brought to the table. Classic wicked problems. Also, some of the key aspects of innovation we keep hearing about from different guests on the show. Patience and a willingness to take smart risks, do things a bit differently, and experiment to see what works. One other point we heard back in episode 14 with Sherry Houston is that big companies are often able to take innovation-related risks that small companies or startups might not be able to, with typically fewer resources. Is that true in the world of social innovation and the bottom layers of the economic pyramid? I think in theory that they actually do have um, the ability to absorb more risk and the capital to do this kind of um, investment. 
um, structurally. However, you know, we see that actually quarterly quarterly returns in capital markets demand um, at these publicly traded organizations to uh, companies to produce returns. Um, ever ever growing faster returns, and so there there is a large market pressure uh, for them to do otherwise. So unless you actually have that strength and leadership, and even um, a strong foothold in the marketplace, the, a large corporation in some ways um, is fighting against its own strength to get this uh, to do this level of um, long term social innovation. In fact, some of the smaller organizations that can um, work more nimbly, test, um, test and design much faster, go through much, uh, many more iterations on the ground, um, could be much more suited to do this work and, and, you know, have breakthroughs than larger organizations might do, especially those that are sort of dual funded through grants as well as um, in revenue that's generated in the market. Um, I just take a look at, you know, the solar lighting industry, for example. It's made huge strides actually at developing a marketplace that's, you know, now looking very much fully sustainable. And that's been um, primarily, I would say, through uh, social enterprises. Um, so there is a role for both large and small organizations and large and small organizations to work together. You can imagine smaller um, social startups uh, designing and building and sort of making those breakthroughs in the marketplace to get a foothold, de-risk, and then potentially being acquired by larger uh, multinationals that see a strategic fit and, you know, have a social impact as well, too. So I think it really does need to come from uh, multiple levels, and there's not just, um, there's pros and cons of, you know, working as a small social startup, as well as those um, within larger um, multinationals that have, you know, sort of the, the know-how, the assets, the, you know, capital to invest, but are in some ways um, encumbered by the type of organization they are. This seems like a good time to mention banking and capital if you're interested in starting your own small and nimble business like Daniel. Although he had initial success on his own with his electric bike business in Alberta, he was having trouble finding a bank to help him. Then he spotted ATB's Entrepreneur Center. With ATB's help, he was able to expand his product line and e-store and now has a successful online business. His story shows when banking isn't a barrier, great things can happen. To hear more about his story, visit atb.com slash Daniel or atbentrepreneurcenter.com to learn how ATB can help you and your business. From banking and capital to the advantages that companies have, what do the challenges look like? Wow, where do I begin? <laughs> I mean, depending depending on what you're working on, um, yeah, they can come from internally and they can come from externally. So, I mean, just sort of painting, you know, two large brushstrokes for you. Um, so, You've got external complexity when you're talking about um, using business models and, and for-profit models to design for social good um, because there's a profit motive. And so there, there are organizations and individuals out there that will be highly skeptical that any for-profit organization um, is really interested in doing good um, for the world and is not interested in just, um, quote-unquote, making money from the poor or... Um, just trying to drive another profit with a, a low quality good. So you do have actually, um, you know, lobby groups that are there to protect uh, vulnerable populations. And I think that um, they serve a really important role in society, but are also going to be some challenges for, um, in particular, large visible companies um, that are 
could have you know very damaging Twitter Twitter uh, feeds um, to stepping into a space of working with vulnerable populations like this. So that is one thing is that um, you know the sort of external environment isn't um, necessarily not everyone wants to see for-profit organizations um, play in this space. So that's one brushstroke of potential challenges that you might run into um, as a large multinational trying to work in social impact or even as uh, social startups um, that have, you know, a, a, a profit um, motive as well, too. The second, I would say, and I would in particular for larger organizations, is the internal challenges. As I was mentioning before, is that there are, um, you know, being a large organization, there are already set ways of doing business. And those processes for a large organization are typically there to optimize um, and make things efficient. And processes that optimize and make things more efficient are typically not the same ones um, that are for innovation and rapid iteration in market and you know, designing for entirely uh, new customer groups. Um, customer segments. And so um, those internal forces um, are going to make it challenging to do um, innovation in general. And then social innovation has the um, additional challenge of um, sort of that those financial KPIs. There's the question of, okay, well, um, typically when you're designing a, a new business, you look to, um, you know, let's say, you know, optimize on profit just I'm saying in just very general business terms is, you know, trying to maximize profits. But when you're looking at designing social ventures, the question is, well, okay, well, so we've made some profit, but how much profit is enough profit? So, you know, are we looking to um, just break even or more than break even? And if it's more than break even, then how much is enough um, to make the uh, financial hurdles, as well as contribute to um, the social and environmental goals of the organization, and that's it's a really tricky question um, to answer. You know, so how much money is enough money internally is going to be one of the bigger challenges. Um, having the right internal processes to um, get these social innovations through um, the different parts of the organization that it needs to go through to make it to market. Um, and then, you know, it also typically is, it's very hard um, to find a place of where it lives inside the organization as well to um, the question of whether it should sit within partnerships or under something like CSR, or does it sit within the core um, part of the business that is, you know, really focused on, you know, efficiency and, you know, um, increasing um, the next quarter's returns, you know, um, on the one hand, um, the latter part of Sitting within the core business, you're going to have access to um, the best know-how and resources. Um, uh, in the former, if it's sitting within CSR and partnerships, it's going to have uh, the most flexibility and patience in terms of making a return on investment. So there's not really a clear place where it could fit within the organization as well, too. And so navigating sort of where um, those internal challenges um, you're going to face a lot if you're working uh, on this as a, a social entrepreneur within um, a large multinational. But there, you know, there are many folks that have done this now and have done this successfully. And there's lots of tips and tips and tools um, to be had to actually doing this well. Um, so, so yeah, there are, there are definitely challenges, but um, anything that's worthwhile will, you know, make you roll up the roll up your sleeves and you know really get into the thick of it. And it's fun as well too. 
Those are the challenges for organizations. It's also pretty well known that entrepreneurs, people involved in innovation inside organizations, often encounter challenges and risks in working to solve big, tough problems. We've heard, too, on the show some of what they have in common with entrepreneurs, and one part of that is deep involvement and commitment to their work. Here's what they might need to consider in taking care of themselves. So I've talked to many, 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 many um, social innovators, both within, both within um, social enterprises as well as uh, large multinationals. And what I found is that actually um, these are an incredibly thoughtful, intelligent, and driven group of people who have invested all of themselves into a piece of work. And when anyone does that, um, the risk of burnout is actually very high because it's not just, you know, an intellectual pursuit or a pursuit for, you know, professional goals, but actually it's usually for a purpose that um, runs very deep um, within a person. It's, it's potentially uh, something that uh, an individual identifies themselves with. And when you're working actually on something so personal um, and, as I said, the challenges are are um, significant. You know, you've got the external challenges, you've got the internal challenges, you've got um, large, complex systems that you're trying to sort through. So um, it really is running a marathon and not a sprint. And so it's really important that actually social innovators um, work every day to um, nourish and support themselves because burnout is actually... I've seen it very prevalent. And actually, the worst thing is to actually have people stop doing this work and, and move away and do something else. Um, ideally, we actually pace ourselves and do this work in a way that allows us to stay in because we know that um, the large systemic challenges are ones that require decades, um, decades of devotion. For more tips and tools related to this topic, Ling Ling has a fortnightly newsletter called Zen and the Art of Social Innovation, along with a larger set of articles and information on the field more broadly that you can subscribe to or access on her website, twolings.com, which we'll include again in the show notes and at the end of the show. On a different note, I asked Ling Ling what she's found in her work that's most surprised her, and it turns out that it's actually universality. Hmm, yeah, you know, what I found is Actually, the more I travel, the more I realize that we're all exactly the same. You know, of course, there are nuances to how we live and, um, you know, beautiful richness and, and cultures um, in different places. But actually, fundamentally, humans are really similar. <laughs> you know, so like when you take when you talk to um, women, you know, women are um very similar in a lot of places, sort of the value systems and sort of their, their care for their children in particular and um, their level of sacrifice and um, their grittiness and uh, ability to get things done is really similar, you know, across all the countries that I've been to and um, sort of the, you know, value systems I, I, I feel are also um, overall, you know, like quite the same, actually. You would think that we'd be... Um, the world's such a large place, but human beings, um, I think, have some a lot of uh, a lot of similar intrinsic motivations and values to them. Especially as the world of work changes and people are looking to do more meaningful things in their careers and to work with organizations whose business aligns with meaning and purpose, there's increasing interest in social innovation and social enterprise type careers. 
Lingley has some very practical and useful thoughts for those who are interested in getting involved. I talked to a lot of students and they're just like, well, you know, how do I get into this work? And I'm like, you know, first tell me what it is that you do. What do you do well? You know, and, and they're like, well, I do partnerships or I do, you know, I know I can leverage organizations. They say these things that are quite like cloudy and fuzzy. And I'm like, okay, think about it this way. If you were a cereal box, what would you say on your box? Are you like sweet with like honey and nuts? Are you, you know, high fiber and there's a toy inside, you know, or, there, or you know, are you the cereal with a, you know, a toy inside? Like, what are you? Because when someone is looking at your CV or looking to hire, it needs to be pretty clear as to what it is that you are, you know, that you're buying, basically. It needs to be like, you know, I, I say cereal aisle because when you go to the U.S., there's that aisle is just mind boggling with uh, the number of options and choices. And you only have about, you know, 10 seconds to get someone's attention. Um, so you need to be very clear about what it is that you offer. Um, and they, they laugh because they're like, wow, I never really <laughs> thought about it. <laughs> what do you write if you're, your, you know, your own cereal box? If, you know, this is your heart's calling, then you should go after it 100%. Um, and going after it means doing two pieces of work. The first piece is know yourself and know what you contribute to this. Um, really get clear on what your skill set is and what you have to offer in this space. And um, if you feel like it's not enough, well, then go back to school and tool up for it. Um, or, you know, get some experience in the commercial sector, you know, in strategy or in design and, and you know, prepare yourself for, uh, for this piece of work. Um, the second is that, you know, given after knowing, having some self-awareness and knowing what you contribute is uh, match it with a, a company, an organization um, uh, that has a need for that particular skill set, help them, you know, uniquely um, solve something um, in the work that they're trying to do. So it's really about matching the two together, you know, sort of the solution and the problem. It, it's very classic, but I, I like to look at it in those terms because, um, it's very easy, and I think uh, um, sort of a big heart is absolutely needed uh, to do this work, but it's not enough, actually. Really, the challenge that you see in the world um, do deserve, you know, a level of rigor and um, seriousness to actually um, apply um, the right skills and um, the right resources to them. So I think it's really important that... Um, those that are looking at getting into this work and feel that's their calling, that they should go after it 100% and that this is not a journey of a few years, but, you know, potentially a lifetime. Um, hope you're, you've you know, buckled yourself in for the ride and that the thing evolves over time as well, too. So, you know, if you're not just coming from out of school, but um, you're looking at switching careers, that actually it's, that's even more interesting because you likely will have something very concrete to offer. Um, into the space that can be immediately deployed and valuable. But the important thing is, is to um, really identify something that um, really, I, I guess, how should I say, um, is a full-bodied yes, like when you think about working on that initiative and um, doing that piece of work that all of your, you feel you can bring all of yourself to it. Um, yeah, and I, I think if you sort of just follow those uh, two, two bits, that um, the thing will work out sooner or later. Finally, Lingling's work has taken her in some ways full circle in building on her childhood experience as a refugee. It's especially meaningful in light of the discussion around refugees and migration globally today from someone who's had direct experience with it and created an accomplished life and career rooted in the experience of finding a new country after having left a first home and who now contributes her skills around the world.
right now. They, I think refugees are seen as um, a drain on resources. And it's, it's a shame, actually, because, actually, you know, when I look at the U.S., it's uh, a country that was built by, you know, immigrants and refugees. The only ones that were natively there were the Native Americans. And so, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, I feel like the dialogue around um, refugees and immigration has changed a lot through the years. And it looks really sad because, you know, my family, when we needed to leave back, you know, 40 years ago this year, um, we were able to find community that opened their doors and welcomed us and allowed us to rebuild our lives. And um, there's so much rhetoric now around, well, you know, refugees should just go back to where they came from. But if you, you know, just take a look at Syrian refugees, there's that is just ridiculous. I don't even know what that means to go back to where they came from. Um, uh, at, you know, during, there's still a civil war. You know, what 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 can you do? Um, you can't take your children back there if they were the lucky ones to escape. Um, they really need to find um, ideally a community that allows them to rebuild their lives. And perhaps one day they could, you know, go back to quote unquote home. But um, like myself and so many others around the world, you know, home ends up being um, where they ended up being to rebuild their lives. Certainly for my family, 40 years later, you know, we're very proud Americans. If you're interested in the topics in this episode or in Ling Ling's work, you can find out more through her article in Harvard Business Review, her online talks, and through the articles and resources and the newsletter accessible through her website, twolings.com. That's T-W-O as in the number two. You can also connect with her on Twitter at twolingstweet. If you'd like to comment on this episode or connect with Cross Pollination, you can reach the podcast at Pollinata1 on Twitter or on our website, crosspollination.co. If you enjoyed the show, of course, we'd always appreciate you sharing it with anyone you think might enjoy it too. Join us next episode where three guests talk about reinventing their work and transitioning careers from working in the oil and gas industry. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Zapspot.com for music.